Welcome to Nerds at Church, a podcast about nerdery and the Bible. I'm Pastor Emily, and I use pronouns like they, them, theirs. And I'm Pastor Kay, and my pronouns are she, her. And I'm Russell, and my pronouns are he, his. In this episode, we'll discuss the first Sunday of Lent, which this year falls on March 6th. Check out the episode description for links to the Bible passages and other references we make in this episode. For our deep dive today, we are excited to have Russell Brayman back to talk about the Jewish festival called Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks. Russell serves as a chaplain for Iowa Methodist Medical Center and Blank Children's Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa, and also enjoys teaching prayer book Hebrew to folks of all ages. Nerdily, he loves Harry Potter, the West Wing, and has been known to geek out on languages. Welcome. Thank you. Yay. Good to be back. It is good to have you back. So today in our first reading, we read about the Jewish festival of Shavuot. Can you tell us what this festival celebrates? So it's a harvest festival that celebrates, I want to say the barley harvest. And it also in more modern settings is kind of the festival that we use to celebrate receiving the Torah at Mount Sinai in large oh. part because it comes 49 days after Passover. Sure. So if, you, huh. if you've ever heard of the counting of the Omer, that's what we're doing. You're counting from the second Passover Seder, 49 days to Shavuot, which is when we receive the Torah. So you go from kind of redemption to revelation. Interesting. Over the course of about two months. Cool. That is particularly interesting to me because in Christianity, um, we celebrate Easter right around the same time that Jewish people tend to, to celebrate Passover. It's calculated a little bit differently, so it's a little bit off sometimes. Um, and our Easter season is also like seven weeks, 49 days, and then Pentecost. I had never made that connection between those two time periods. Is Pentecost Shavuot? Pentecost is 50 days after Easter. And I know that that's also, for, for us at least, um, I know that's also a name given to a, a Jewish holiday. But I think that... I think that's Shavuot. It will make sense that, that it might be. be. Yeah. I'm going to just... Oh. Because it all it's also 50 days. I am less well-versed on the Christian liturgical calendar, but... Pentecost just means 50 days in Greek. Pente that's yeah. literally... Yeah. So... Let me look. No, I'm curious. I, I think so, but I know um, what you guys call the Festival of Booths. We Shavuot, call Shavuot, also it's not called as big a deal. Pentecost in full Hag Shavuot Festival of Weeks. So yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. interesting. Right. So while I was looking things up for this episode, I have to say that this was one of my favorite discoveries. Uh, is it true that this festival would be very different if there had been alarm clocks in ancient Israel? Most of Jewish culture would be very different if there were alarm clocks in ancient Israel. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's also probably fair. <laughs> um, but what I imagine you're referring to is we settle our calendar by literally observing the lunar cycle Yes. in mm -hmm. Jerusalem at the appropriate time. So, you know, there. if you ever hear, you know, in many, in many Jewish communities, Rosh Hashanah has, is observed for two days. Um, right. The holy days in Sukkot and Passover, the first and the last are observed for two days. There's always an extra yeah. day included to pad any goof ups that might have gotten made in observing the, the, the lunar cycle or in communicating it because 
what they would do is they would they would calculate the full moon and then they light fires on various Judean hilltops so that like in Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Yes. Gondor calls for aid. They're calling for a different thing, but yes. Um, they would they would light fires in the Judean hills to signal to the other communities that, yep, it's the new moon, so it's the new month, and then you count the festivals accordingly. Rosh sure. Hashanah just happens to be the only one that's actually the, on the first day of the month. Well, and also when I was reading up for this, I uh, found out that there is now a tradition of staying up the night before Shavuot to study Torah, and the reason for that was because supposedly the Israelites overslept the first time. I don't, and I don't so know they, about they Israelites didn't want sleeping, to, uh, but, I, but yeah, there is. It's called Tikkun Leil Shavuot, the repair of the night of of, of Shavuot, and it's okay. yeah. In some communities, you will stay up all night. Usually, there is obscene quantities of coffee and cheesecake. Ooh, Wikipedia definitely claims that this holiday is not fully responsible, but definitely helped the spread of coffee as a phenomenon across the continent of Eurasia in a big way. I would believe that. I, I was going to ask you what, particularly because it's tied into the harvest, what foods are connected to the festival. But if it's the barley harvest, are there like barley foods too, or just like coffee and cheesecake? It's a dairy. It it's dairy. Is the is mm-hmm. Shavuot is known for dairy, and I'm not. It's again, it's one of those things. I'm not 100 percent sure why. Hmm. You know, I think there's an argument that Torah is the milk of the Jewish people. Although I may have just made that up completely. But dairy is sort of the custom on on uh, Shavuot, just like, you know, on, on Hanukkah, you eat things that are fried in oil to commemorate the miracle of the oil. Sure. That makes sense. Yeah. Interesting. So do you have like a favorite type of cheesecake? <laughs> a friend of mine who shall remain nameless at one point took a piece of cheesecake away from me, not <gasps> think, out, of, out of belief that I wasn't enjoying it sufficiently. Cheesecake's not my favorite thing in the world. I have grown to appreciate it more and more. But I have okay. had it taken away from me for fear that I wouldn't appro- appro- appropriately. Uh... I mean, that that story could have gone two ways, right? It could have gone the way that it went of like, because I don't appreciate it, someone took it away, which like, you know, honestly, <laughs> I might do the same thing because I love cheesecake. But it also could have gone, someone took it away because I didn't look like I was appreciating it enough and they learned their lesson and never did that again. <laughs> I, I was gonna say, I in my going. family, we, we wouldn't tell that story because that would involve ruining our plausible deniability. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. I think I was too shocked at the moment to effectively re- That's to fair. effectively defend my cheesecake. <laughs> that makes sense. That's what forks are for. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So how is this uh, festival often celebrated today? I imagine there have to be differences depending on where you live, obviously, but. Less than you might think. So the tikkun is a big part of the observance of Shavuot in, and again, it depends on your community. Um, You know, I've been to places where you literally stay up all night and I was slotted to teach at two o'clock in the morning. Speaking of, speaking of nerdery and and Judaism, I think at that point I had worked out, worked a, a teaching session on Jewish values in the Hunger Games. Oh, wow. Or Jewish sure. philosophy in the Hunger Games. And so I think I was teaching that at like two o'clock in the morning. I think this was in- See, I could see getting scheduled for the two o'clock slot as either you are new and therefore that's what it the, was. the lowest ranked or <laughs> yes, because I, I figured it was either that or uh, they truly trusted you to actually stay awake at that hour, <laughs> in which case that would have been a, a deep compliment. But, I, think, I think I did it. I think I did the two o'clock session. Then I think I started walking back home to sleep. I think it was, I think 
I don't think I made it too much past that. Sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, in those communities, oftentimes then they will do a sunrise shacharit service and do the morning Shavuot festival service. They they don't take their time with it and go and kind of speed through it and do that at sunrise. Um, but otherwise, like most Jewish holidays, there's a you know a full festival morning service with Torah reading mm. and all the various festival editions. Okay, but if you're staying up all night, then probably people ready tend, to get... people tend to want to do that quickly so they can go home and go to sleep. So do they still read the Torah? Oh yeah. Okay. Sure. I just wanted to check because you said it was really fast, and then you said that the other one has like a full festival with Torah reading. So no, it's the no. You I mean. It's not a halachic Shavuot service if you don't do the Torah reading, which is... What does halachic mean for our listeners? Certainly. Looks like it's Exodus 19. Interesting. Exodus 19. Which is... Oh, well, that would make sense. Which is getting Torah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Because that's what we had you on here for last year. And I'll explain my my terms in a moment. Maftir is the same one for all of the major holidays... And that's the first fruits. Sure. Actually, that might just that might be specifically Shavuot. Yeah. So Maftir, which like from what we read in Deuteronomy, which is the reading for today, Shavuot seems like it should be the Maftir reading. I believe it is. Maftir is usually an extra reading at the end. Mm. I believe because of the additional sacrifice on Shabbat and on holidays. Oh, okay. To swing back to halachically, because you asked. Mm-hmm. So halacha is the system of Jewish law. And mm-hmm. you could take entire graduate school courses and only cover bits and pieces of it. It's So it kind of takes what is written in the Torah and then kind of, which is then elaborated into the Talmud, into the Talmud with all of the various debates and then eventually, you know, shuffled into various halachic codes. So the different Jewish movements and different rabbis will, you know, abide by different codes. Uh, there's a book I have hanging around hanging around here somewhere, The Guide to Jewish Law and Practice by Rabbi Isaac Klein. And that's kind of the one that I use when I have specific questions. But that's the idea of halacha, that there are certain, you know, Jewish legal rules and restrictions about keeping kosher, about observing holidays, mm-hmm. all those kinds of things. Sure. Well, and half of the fun of being able to connect to new people on social media and especially Twitter is getting to see them uh, discuss possible what ifs. And I have to say, I've run into a few different conversations on social media about uh, Jewish people discussing. So how would aliens work into this or how would dinosaurs work into that or, you know, that kind of thing. And those are always great fun. You also you also haven't truly nerdily lived unless you have read Masechet Chopsticks which is a parody somebody wrote of a Talmudic tractate about the rules for eating Chinese food on Christmas. <laughs> that sounds fantastic. It is delightful. Is, yeah. And I haven't reread it and I don't, I'm starting to wonder how well it has aged, but Christopher Moore wrote Lamb, the gospel according to Biff Christ's childhood pal. And <laughs> that like has a, a part of the story includes Joshua, who is Jesus, Joshua's birthday, and they're they are somewhere in Asia, I think in what is known as now known as China, but I'm not positive. And they're eating Chinese food for his birthday. And so there's this like <laughs> hat tip to 
the nice. tradition continuing for millennia. Well, because, I mean, in reality, Chinese food restaurants tended to be the ones that were open on Christmas because their mm-hmm. owners were not generally observing Christmas with their families. Yep. And so, you know, you can go into all the sociological whatnot of what eating kosher at a Chinese restaurant looks like. Although now there are kosher Chinese restaurants. I was going to say, there also is a lot of dairy in Chinese food. No, but there is a lot of pork and shrimp. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Okay. Circling back. Sorry. Because I'm curious, what is your favorite aspect of Jewish philosophy in the Hunger Games? So I kind of used it more as a what not to do. <laughs> I mean, Fair. generally, when it comes to the Hunger Games, a dystopia, yeah. that's a good idea. Uh huh. Thou shalt not, you know, put children in an arena to fight to the death. I think that's not a bad rule to start with. Absolutely. One of the philosophers that I have that has kind of stuck with me is Martin Buber and his I and Thou mm. philosophy. The basic gist of it is, with apologies to Rabbi Buber, the way that we know that we come to know God is through the way that we relate to other people. Mm-hmm. And sure. so the people for whom our relationship is entirely based on knowing and drawing close to that person, those are the relationships that kind of mirror and mimic our relationship with God. So the relationship you have with your cab driver who you are paying to take you someplace or mm-hmm. the person who delivers your newspaper is one thing, but the relationship you have with a close friend or family member is much more, I am relating to you for the sake of relating to you. I am relating to you to know sure. you because I love you and care about you. Um, that is how we relate to God and how we hope God relates to us. Mm. So taking out the transactional, like it's much more transactional when it's a cab driver or something. Right. So right. Buber, so Buber has the I-it relationship and the I-thou relationship. Mm. Yes. I think Martin Luther King Jr. expanded on that concept in the letter to the Birmingham jail, which is where I ran into it last. But that's letter right. from a Birmingham jail? That's probably, y- yes, sorry. Yeah, writing to the jail wouldn't have made a lot of sense. Yeah, writing to <laughs> it, the white the moderate pastors. Yeah, makes but yes, uh, the, I I think that's where I first ran into that concept. But it it is a, a beautiful way of thinking about our relationships with other people mm-hmm. and asking ourselves, is this really how we're supposed to be treating them? Yeah. That makes sense. Then that is like all over the place in Hunger Games, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the way, I mean, the way they deal with food and the way that they deal with drink and, you know, eating to the point of needing to make yourself throw up to be able to to eat more, Mm -hmm. you know, the relationship with food is very different. Like there's, there's lots of ways to teach it. And I would probably, if I was going to rework it, do it differently the second time through, but I've taught that a couple of times. Hmm. Yeah. I might've also tossed in some Holocaust theology because- that seemed appropriate too. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Well, and especially like the, the connections between indigenous people, native people and reservations and mm. Holocaust and ghettos and concentration camps and the ways that, and native people and reservations and districts in the hunger games. Like there's a whole triangle of connection. Yeah. yeah. There's also a very good movie I saw recently. The name I don't remember on Netflix about this, you know, Anglo-Canadian guy who gets hired to teach out in Nunavut. I don't think it's on a reservation, but certainly among a community that was impacted by residential schools mm. and comes to teach the kids lacrosse as a means of, you know, helping them to connect with him, the school, the academics, and kind of how that, you know, moves across with him gaining familiarity with, you know, who they are and what they are and 
Mm-hmm. It's kind of a, there's certainly a white savior aspect to it, but it's kind of an interesting yeah. movie as well. Also interesting because didn't look La- doesn't lacrosse have its origins in I was gonna indigenous say. cultures? Yeah. They didn't talk about yeah. That. They didn't talk about that part of it in this movie. <laughs> I'm why I'm would you? Not surprised. There are other movies but, where they do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But that's an interesting like there's a connection I think in this conversation that we're having, right? We're we're talking to you specifically about a festival, about a holy day in Judaism and there, like in the United States, there is a long period of time where Native people were not allowed and were legally like persecuted and harmed and killed for expressing their traditions and their faith practices and their holy days and or their languages and their languages. And I think so that's also been the case depending on you know, what time period we're talking about, both biblically and historic and like non-biblical historically for Jewish people of when are Jewish practice, when have Jewish practices been banned? When have people been like, what does it look like to be in exile? And we get that in like the story of Daniel. How do you navigate being in exile and keeping faith practices or not keeping faith practices? All of that stuff. Heck, look at the entirety of the Babylonian Talmud. Yeah. That's why it was written. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's how that came to be. Sure. Well, and I, I was also surprised to see that Shabuot, uh has a connection to the Book of Ruth as well. And the source I was looking at uh, said it was partly because of the Barley Festival, but also uh, because it involved someone taking on the Torah, taking on, uh, voluntarily adopting it uh, as Ruth, as a foreigner, uh, converts to Judaism and... Mm. Uh, and, and voluntarily adopts it of her own free will. Your people will be my people. My your God will be my God. Sure. Yeah. I think that it is. It's it's one of we call them the the, the Megillas, the Megillot. Mm-hmm. There are five of them. Let's see if I can get them. Ruth, Song of Songs, Esther, Ecclesiastes, and Ecclesiastes. Oh, and Jonah, I believe. Mm. See, that's interesting to me because Ecclesiastes has such a different tone yeah. than yeah. the others. <laughs> Like the I others like, all have like some happiness and joy to them, and wow, Ecclesiastes is the one you read on Sukkot. Okay, uh, with the idea, the idea being that the world is impermanent. Yeah, that's fair. That's why you mm-hmm. build. That's why you build a hut that you cover the top with, with with branches and leaves. It's meant to be movable. The world is the, the world is impermanent. Yeah, sure. Anything can happen. So we give but you she... Ecclesiastes. <laughs> that's yeah. This is like a little bit random, except that technically this is the deep dive topic. But <laughs> how have you noticed the traditions and the practices around Shavuot? Like, have they shifted? Have you been able to celebrate? Like, have, have people been celebrating online? Like, how has the pandemic impacted Shavuot? I think with the ability to be online we've been able to do more of like the Tikkun Leil Shavuot stuff. Mm-hmm. Smaller communities are often less able to do the full all night thing mm-hmm. in part because of lack of interest and in part because of lack of, of teachers. Um, yeah. The times I've been able, the times I've been at ones that have gone all night, it's been in big communities where, you know, you have five, six, seven teachers mm-hmm. taking an hour and teaching yeah. a lesson. So I think, I think, I think that's it. I mean, I think also, you know, my synagogue is meeting in person. We're all masked, 
um, other communities are making different choices. But mm-hmm. I think that, you know, gathering together has also changed. Yeah. We don't like yeah. it used to be that when you were called to the Torah, you went up and you were standing next to the Torah reader behind the lectern. Oh, we no longer do that. We were keeping people much more separate um, when yeah. we were in person. So, you know, there's there's attempts to make it safer. Yeah. Well, and I remember in so in seminary, I well, frequently for a seminarian, so somewhat sporadically um, attended Shabbat services at the synagogue that was like six blocks away. It was it was like next door neighbors with President Obama at the time. So it was like you had to go behind Secret Service to get to the synagogue. But I remember for Shabbat services, the Torah would actually be brought around, would like be brought around um, among people. And so I imagine that also would be a very different. We don't do that. We we don't do that anymore now. Yeah. Yeah. Which is hard. It's hard to, like, I, I hear in your voice a sadness about that, I think. It's a cool part. It's so there's this symbolism that the Torah is for everybody and it's, it's mm-hmm. the people's scroll and it's our communal story. And so you parade it around the synagogue. Mm-hmm. People will often touch it with either their, their talus or their prayer shawl or their prayer book and kiss it to show reverence. Yeah. You know, in some synagogues they have, it's adorable. They have a collection of stuffed Torahs and the little kids will grab a stuffed Torah and follow the processional around the sanctuary. Okay. That's fantastic. It's 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 seriously adorable. <laughs> it's a part. It's you know. It's a it's a part of the ceremony and the, and the tradition. The the Torah service is, and I, I apologize if I'm going off topic here, but the Torah service and the liturgy is written to mimic the Sinai experience. Mm-hmm. Like there's meant to be awe sure. and wonder yeah. as the Torah is taken out and you know prepared to be read before the people. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have lost some of that reverence and community because of the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually like really on topic, just for clarity, to be perfectly queer, just very on topic. But I think there are so many small ways and big ways that faith communities practices have changed during the pandemic. And we don't talk about it a lot on this podcast because this podcast is like, not a a church, not a congregation or a faith, like a worshiping community. But we talk about some of like the pandemic comes up a fair amount. And I think there's just this, there's a unique place to that. I don't think we've done enough of certainly in the Christian communities. I am aware of, of naming the things that have changed that, that are sad. Yeah. I would agree with that. And and because we're not naming it, then it comes out sideways, right? Then we have pushes to yeah. do things to get back to normal when nothing's going to be normal again. There is no normal. But to to be able to say, you know, that this particular aspect of worship that for some people was just like a thing that happened in worship and for some people like who know the meaning and the connection to receiving the commandments and all of that, right? ties together and to be able to say yeah that's missing then creates the space to say okay are there other ways to do it or is this something that when the pandemic is actually over we definitely need to go back to having this like how do we make sure that people know that mount sinai that moses comes down from mount sinai 
and that the people are in awe and that the people celebrate and and how do we continue to embody that in our worship practices it's i mean it can be a very kind of cool experience um it becomes Mm -hmm. somewhat routine in that you do it every week but it also kind of is a kind of a interesting sort of stop in the service you know we you know we 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 take the like you know you at our synagogue, oftentimes the leader of services switches between, you know, the, the preliminary and, and morning service, and then somebody else takes over to, to do the leading for the Torah service. Mm. And it's like, you know, it's, you know, it's the, the music changes and it's a, it's a, you know, there's this Sinai experience and the, and the procession with the Torah scroll and the opening of it and the chanting. And it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's kind of a, it's kind of a beautiful experience. Yeah. Yeah. I know in the um, hospital communion has become an issue during the pandemic mm-hmm. yeah, um, yeah. in large part because we don't have the, is, what is the term? Ecumenical minister? No, not ecumenical. Um, Eucharistic. Ministers. That's the one. Yeah. Eucharistic ministers aren't coming into the hospital anymore. Primarily it's our Catholic priests. Um, and even they're trying to limit, mm-hmm. you know, handing people things to put in their mouth. Yeah. 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 Well, and to some extent, there's also a lot of us don't realize how, truly weird things have gotten until we're suddenly reminded. I was telling a story a couple of weeks ago about how uh, I was doing a class with some middle school students and we, uh, in passing, uh, my co-pastor and I told a story about a time maybe six or seven years ago when a guy predicted the end of the world and the rest of the world thought he was, you know, losing his marbles. And uh, that this was a memorable experience. And then we had to explain to these modern day middle school students that the reason why that was memorable was because it was unusual at the time and that Mm -hmm. we weren't back then living in a time where there were, you know, new terrifying news stories every day and we weren't in a pandemic and we weren't constantly bombarded with all this extra stuff. And because we eventually realized that they weren't getting it because they grew up in a very different time. And so we didn't even realize what their normal was. Man. Yeah. That's really something. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think when Emily talks about making sure that, that the tradition is passed on, we might need to start that work a little sooner than we thought. Yeah. I hadn't even, I hadn't thought about that part of it, but yeah. it makes sense. Some bar mitzvah ceremonies the Torah, bar and bat mitzvah, the Torah is taken out and processed around the congregation. And then there's a ceremony where, you know, the rabbi hands it to the bar and bat mitzvah's grandparents who mm. hand it to their parents who hand it to the bar and bat mitzvah. Mm. And so, oh. you know, the scroll is kind of being passed from generation to generation to generation. Yeah, that's beautiful. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, there's, we'll get into this more for our fifth Sunday our episode on the fifth Sunday in Lent, when we talk about abundance and extravagance and kind of dive deeper into worship. Oh, yes. But there is this like worship is special and it's okay for it to be special and to have like these particular moments of clarity and of meaning that are so much deeper than a lot of people realize, but also then just going about our daily lives. And I think part of that is that it helps our daily lives have richer meaning, right? Like, you talked about communion and how how that has changed in the hospital. Communion has changed in worship too, because when it was online, some congregations decided not to have communion. I am of the deep belief that like, no, we're going to keep having communion. We're just 
going to have it from our homes. And the gift that that has been has been to make explicit that communion and that connection we have to each other is a connection that happens maybe with bread and cup, but also maybe with muffins or pancakes or crackers or juice or coffee, that the parts of communion that are so deeply meaningful and connective can happen in other parts of our lives. And and so like making those connections with worship and letting worship and not just letting, but like making worship continue to be worship makes a big difference. But it's it gets harder when different pieces of it have to shift and have to be different or have to be taken away. But the, yeah, that piece of from grandparent to parent to sure to the new to the newly newly about to be adult member it's interesting because you were talking about that with you know communion and it being this communal thing i have you know attended services where i have seen communion be given i have never personally taken it for i suppose suppose are obvious reasons but you know thinking about shavuot and the and the tikkun whale shavuot that we were talking about before to persuade that many Jews to stay up that late requires refreshments of some sort or another. <laughs> and so there's usually, you know, a, you know, coffee is usually available pretty constantly. And there's a break in the evening for, you know, blintzes and cheesecake and other appropriate festival food. Mm-hmm. You know, our services in our, our Saturday morning Shabbat services traditionally end with, you know, Kiddush and Motzi and are then followed by Shabbat lunch, which we are in the process of figuring out how to do again, mm, even yeah. in this stage of the pandemic. But that, you know, I don't think we formalize it in the same way that, that, that are, that, that are, that my Christian friends do, but that sense of gathering and eating and sharing and talking and, and, you know, having this community experience is an important part of worship. Mm-hmm. It's an important yeah. part of, of, of the, of the experience going to the temple. Like, you know, Shavuot was one of the Shalosh Regalim, the three pilgrimage festivals. People, oh. people schlepped to Jerusalem to, to, to have this experience. And mm-hmm. the temple was certainly a site of worship, but it was also the time when everyone can get together and see their friends that you only saw at the three pilgrimage festivals when you brought, sure. when you brought your stuff and you made your sacrifices to God. So, you know, there is this holy sanctified nature of, of prayer and worship and there's this togetherness, this is how we build community side to worship. It's like the old joke, mm-hmm. you know, Goldberg goes to synagogue to talk to God. I go to synagogue to talk to Goldberg. <laughs> <laughs> yep. That's fantastic. I think there could be a pretty easy, could, like, Christian equivalent. Of that. I, I think we would be less willing to make that joke because the self-righteousness would get in the way. But yes, I... <laughs> I'm not touching that with a 10 foot pole. No, 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 no. <laughs> right, right. Like I'm not about to say it in case in a congregation. And so probably really not about to say it, but yeah, yeah that's I've, as I've been doing pulpit supply, it's fascinating to me to see the different practices in different congregations and what different people think is fine. And I'm doing it right now with all of my experience of a pandemic in Iowa, where the government intentionally is not protecting people in a state where people had more protections and more intentionality by the government. And so then it's like, I don't know if it's safe. It doesn't feel safe because nothing feels safe in Iowa. 
and of not in Iowa. <laughs> that that definitely has a everything is legal in New Jersey uh, <laughs> energy to it. Yeah, except for pumping your own gas. Right. Well, yes, of course. That is very much you have to keep some things absolutely the important things. Um, I mean, I think it's actually like there's actually like legit reasons why pumping your own gas is a thing. But anyway, um, yeah, that's fascinating. Yes, this podcast is not officially taking a stance against the state of New Jersey or her people. And uh, please do not take anything that we say about New Jersey in a litigious manner. So. Okay, coming in with the disclaimers, as always. Also, murder is still bad. Murder is still bad. No particular reason to say that. Just I feel like that's something that responsible people should say now. And yeah, then, didn't so. we just say that last week? <laughs> I last week I just said that we had not that we I had not had to say that on this podcast for quite some time and I was very proud of us and here we go. Yep. So. <laughs> uh, so so Russell, <laughs> is there anything else that you wish non-Jewish or especially Christian people understood about Shavuot or Jewish holy days more broadly? I think you know Shavuot is a strange holy day just in terms of kind of how it fits into the American calendar. Um, it's kind of the holiday we don't do that much with in Hebrew school because by the time it mm -hmm. comes, most Hebrew mm -hmm. schools are broken for the summer, but kids mm -hmm. haven't quite gone to camp. So it kind of is one that is not super well known and practiced in our community. It's a great holiday just in terms of, you know, learning Torah and, you know, celebrating it and kind of having this experience. It doesn't have the the pomp and circumstance of shaking the lulav and the etrog or the, you know, family gathering of the Seder at Passover. But mm -hmm. it's, you know, still kind of an amazing holiday with the traditions of the tikkun and and all the cheesecake that people would want to eat <laughs> or not, as the case may or be. Or more. <laughs> sure. It's a... Save some for the rest of us. It's okay. Yeah. I will gladly I, take those I, I, I think our holidays right. kind of have, you know, our pilgrimage festivals kind of have three different, you know, there's sort of different vibes on each of them, but they're also kind of have some things about them that are very similar. And it's there, mm -hmm. they can be kind of fun holidays to experience and to gather together for and to, you know, really embrace. Sure. Yeah. I have to say that there were several ages where I definitely would have loved the challenge of this is a holiday where you're supposed to try to stay up all night. So. Oh, it's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and as you were describing it, I was not familiar with it and it sounds amazing. Like, I really want to go to one, right? And there's, you know. Just given where you are, you probably could. I think I could. I think I could. And certainly we'll go respectfully and, like, not, as as we like to remind our Christian listeners especially, not Christian all over everything. But, yeah, to be able to, like, especially, like, as you're talking about the different, like, if everybody gets a different hour to teach things, like there's so much diversity in what you could teach. And just to like be able to sit and absorb, this is the Enneagram 5 in me coming out, to sit and absorb all of the knowledge <laughs> with cheesecake. And to be fair, two o'clock in the morning sounds like a great time to talk about the Hunger Games because the creepiness is definitely going to get across. <laughs> Speaking of Shavuot, We'll dive into our readings for this episode. Um, our first reading is from Deuteronomy chapter 26, verses 1 through 11. God institutes the harvest feast, Shavuot, or the festival of weeks. 
And Israel offers to God the first fruits of the harvest, which God has given them. So one of the themes for this passage is first fruits, which at least it, the way that I have learned it in Christianity, first fruits is also like a best of the best, like the best fruits, the first fruits, the pri- the primacy ones, which I don't, I don't know, sometimes first fruits are like scrawny, but I've decided that they are the best ones. And so this reminded me of the Great British Baking Show. So in all of the competitions, right, the best of the best, the final product is always tasted first by, depending on which season, Mary Berry or Prue and (laughs) Paul Hollywood. And so they get, they are the like equivalent of God in this, I guess. Yeah, uh, well, to be fair, from what I understand of Britain, Mary Berry being the goddess of baking is kind of a given, but. That's fair. But yeah, so it's like the best of the best, they get the best of the best, and then everybody else gets to eat, like, what is left after after the competition part. I'm told everyone, everyone, including the production assistants, walk around with forks. <laughs> yes. That's fantastic. It has been really cool. The two seasons that they did in the pandemic, it's been really cool, actually, that so it used to be that like people who got who left the show earlier came back and family and friends and all gathered and they can't do that now. But everybody in the production team is in a bubble together. And so now instead of, you know, all the family and everybody else is like still working, all of the people who have worked so hard on the show get to experience and support the final three and celebrate with them and eat their signature bakes and all of that stuff. Um, And I actually like really love that shift. Like it sucks that you can't be with your family, but to be able to like share that with the people who have spent weeks and weeks, months supporting you and washing your dishes and making sure you look good. And yeah. Yeah. Really cool. And then as we dive into the re- the verses, in verses 7 and 8, we read, We cried to the Becoming One, the God of our ancestors. The Becoming One heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. The Becoming One brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with a terrifying display of power, and with signs and wonders. And I love the beginning of verse 8 is like one that somehow has been like taken to heart and like memor- somehow I memorized it. I don't know how, but um, it reminded me of in the Ember in the Ashes series, the scholars are living under oppression and there is this like cry and lament and there are different people who try to resist and there's a resistance and all of that. But Laia really becomes like the Moses figure in this. And over the course of the four books, like she does like, she raises her voice and she challenges and she brings people out um, from oppression. And there are definitely terrifying displays of power and signs and wonders and all of that stuff. And, but I really like the idea of Laia as a Moses figure in that. So fun. I just love the Ember in the Ashes series and it's been a while since I referenced them. Yeah. And I read verse 11, which says, Then you, together with the Levites and the aliens who reside among you, shall celebrate with all the bounty that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house. So this celebration has an invite list. You celebrate with the priests and their families and any local immigrants or travelers. And so I just want to say, you know, that not throwing out the clergy before you start the party is always nice and appreciated. Absolutely. (laughs) 
but I'm also wondering about clergy who are also travelers now. And so the thought occurred to me, uh, like Shepherd Book from Firefly, uh, how how that show would have been so different if Shepherd Book had been a rabbi instead of a Christian pastor. Oh. There is a, a subgenre in fan fiction, obviously mostly powered by Jewish people in fandom, uh, where you take characters and uh, imagine uh, if they were Jewish and how would the story change. And hmm. uh, one of my favorites for that was a, a fanfic that imagined if all of the original Avengers uh, were uh, Jewish and uh, how that would change the the tenor of the story, uh, but that's a deeply scary. Also, <laughs> it it's re- it was really interesting, and my favorite thing was that the very last Avenger to to sort of both realize and also admit that they were Jewish was Steve Rogers, because of course his mother's name is Sarah, mm-hmm. and in mm-hmm. this version of the story, she had married a Catholic man. And had not been terribly observant personally, but he discovers uh, through like the work of a historian or something that she actually had a Jewish background uh, hmm. and starts to embrace it. And it was really interesting. But like the the different ways that the ethics in the show or or in the movie or in the books or so- something uh, and would have been changed uh, and usually, frankly, examined more closely than the author was willing to do for using a culture that they were. Uh, born and bred in, mm-hmm. it it can be very interesting. Particularly interesting in light of Russell's Jewish philosophy in The Hunger Games. Yes. Okay, now I'm Googling Jewish Avengers fan fiction. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's lots. Um, I'll, to be honest, I was first introduced to that whole subgenre because the actresses who play Jane Foster and Darcy Lewis, uh, Natalie Portman and Kat Dennings, are uh, both Jewish. And mm-hmm. so it started with imagining, you know, if the movies acknowledged the fact that both of these women are Jewish, <laughs> how would they be different? And then it started growing from there. Um, it's interesting. There's so. controversy now. They're making a movie about Golda Meir, the the Israeli prime minister <laughs> from the 70s. Oh. And I think, I think Helen Mirren is supposedly playing her. And there's some controversy about whether or not that should be a Jewish actress. Right. Playing cold in my ear. Interesting. Yeah, I have definitely seen a lot of very interesting fandom meta on uh, the, the character Worf from Star Trek. Uh, what is Klingon, but he was raised by human parents due to you know excessive backstory, and his human adoptive parents were explicitly Russian and heavily, heavily implied to be Jewish. Mm-hmm. They actually got one of the actors who was most famous for playing Tevia in Fiddler on the Roof to be his dad. And, uh, and his mom was uh, a famous Jewish actress. And they, I think they only actually say outright that he was raised in a Jewish family, like once very briefly, but uh, it's uh, led to things such as, uh, you know, the way Worf talks about uh, Klingon, ancestors and history and uh, and the various rituals and so forth uh, has led more than one person to imagine what would have happened if he had had the opportunity to expound on the importance of tradition, <laughs> tradition. Uh, and tradition th- yes exactly yes <laughs> so as his father would say of course yes um i would just like to point out for everyone listening in at home that both Russell and I broke into <laughs> dance. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 
Uh, well, if I don't make Emily dance at least once an episode, it doesn't feel like a real episode. So I, I, I'm glad I managed to do that. It's true. I do think, uh, though, that there's, there is, and I just want to, like, there's so much good right now that I just want to talk about everything. But the the controversy yes. around, right, like, if the character it is Jewish, and that is a prominent thing, like, should the actor playing them be Jewish, is, it's not just, like, that is an aspect of this larger controversy conversation around representation because like for sure in the trans community if you are not trans you should not be playing a trans character certainly and disabled yeah actors right and certainly like if you are a cisgender man you should not be playing a transgender woman and it actually like causes harm in the long term right like it it causes harm it is part of why trans women are killed so much and I think whenever it's a group that is less, a, a group that is marginalized or oppressed or not properly represented, it makes sense to me. Like, I think I would fall on the, like, just not knowing much, but I would fall on the, yeah, she should be played by a Jewish actor, especially like when it is part of the story, right? Like, one of the things that's starting to come out now and kind of the zeitgeist, um, you know, I'm thinking of the Whoopi Goldberg controversy with what she said in, um, right. I think, on The View where mm-hmm. she got herself suspended. But this sense that Judaism has this, is in this weird joint realm of being both a religion and a people or a nationhood. Mm-hmm. So there's an ethnicity to it as well. And so that in many ways sort of puts a little bit of a different spin on lots of things. You know, I spent a mm-hmm. fair amount of time in college, you know, taking Jewish American history and studying Jew- Jewish culture and, and history and this sense of being both a religious tradition and a racial identity causes some wrinkles in the way that, yeah. you know, we look at the world. Mm-hmm. I should say maybe I look at the world, but certainly mm-hmm. yeah. the way I've been taught to look at the world. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Rabbi Daniel Rutenberg had a great Twitter thread, I think it was her, about Whoopi Goldberg's com comments and the complicated nature of it because i think Whoopi is jewish or at least has jewish ancestry mm-hmm. and so it's like extra complicated i don't know much about the what she said actually like what she actually said i have just seen <laughs> seen my twitter feed of twitter rabbis <laughs> talking about yes. it um well and then there's the additional complication of how the reaction to it was affected by racism mm-hmm. And how if a white man had said the exact same thing, the reaction would have been quite different. Yeah. But yeah. That is but I do think it's sad. Yeah. Yeah. But I do think that it like, you know, circling back to the like actor acting and who represents who, part of it is like tied into what we were talking about in the deep dive with like Christian satyrs and the importance of not doing them. Yeah. They're not the like most dangerous thing for Jewish people, but they contribute to a culture that says Christians can take what they want from Judaism. Christians can be, can portray Jewish people, can appropriate culture. There are so many groups that have the, the complicated aspects to them. Uh, I remember reading an interview with Alexis Bledel, who played uh, the young girl Rory in Gilmore Girls. And I was surprised to learn that her native language, her first language, is not English. Uh, She grew up speaking Spanish, Mm -hmm. uh, and she's a Latina, but she 
you know, looks Caucasian. <laughs> and the way that she has been treated uh, in many situations has been affected by that. And so that's been an ongoing thing for her. Uh, and we don't acknowledge the the fact that there are nuances to this stuff mm -hmm. often enough. Our second reading today is from Romans chapter 10, verses 8b through 13. Paul proclaims that all who believe and confess faith in Christ will be saved, whatever their background. So one of the themes that I noticed in this passage is the like intention that Paul has is to specifically not condemn people for their background, right? It is a, it doesn't matter how you got to belief in Christ or faith in Christ or trust in Christ. It is that you are here that matters. Um, and the way that that gets twisted really easily. So it's not actually a theme in the thing, but frequently passages like this one get twisted to condemn, right? Instead of the emphasis being wherever you are coming from, the fact that you are here is what matters. It's you have to believe, say, do these things in order to be saved. And it's like, that's not what Paul was saying. Paul was saying... Paul was making things more expansive and then it's like used to be more exclusive. And it, it reminded me of the little mermaid, <laughs> specifically the second little mermaid. Um, and it's been a long time since I saw it, but so at the end of the original little mermaid, Ariel gets the gift of legs like she wants and she gets to go live with Eric and Mary and have kids and things. And yet the community that she becomes a part of develops this fear and distrust of mer people, like not an intentional one, not an awareness of them, but like even she is like very hesitant because, and so like this space that was opened to be more expansive for her to be with the person that she loved and to be in this new community then becomes an exclusive one. And so barriers get built up that keep her from being part, from being able to relate with the her family of origin and the community that she comes from in ways that are harmful and basically the entire plot of the second movie, I think, in my memory, at least. Hmm. I generally have a policy of not watching Disney sequels unless they have specifically been recommended to me. Yeah, I don't so like I have not seen that recommend one, but... it. <laughs> it just, I don't even remember why I watched it when I watched it. I think I was like babysitting or something. Sure. Probably, hopefully. <laughs> So in verse 10, we read, For one believes with the heart, and so is justified, and one confesses with the mouth, and so is saved. But, of course, then there's the question of what if one can't talk? Uh, there is a, a genre of fan fiction that I've mentioned before, uh, where people are born with or uh, eventually come to have and, and recognize that they have a soulmate or sometimes multiple soulmates. Mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes they're different kind of soulmates, uh, but that gets complicated but some of these stories involve something called soul marks which is the idea that you have the first words that your soulmate will say to you uh, tattooed on you somewhere and mm -hmm. uh that or you're often born with it like a birthmark um or uh, if your soulmate is younger than you then it shows up when they're born mm -hmm. uh and uh, often they're also in your soulmate's handwriting which is especially interesting because some people have terrible handwriting and it's kind of hard to read <laughs> what those words are supposed to be uh, but have there have been some interesting explorations of that of what does that look like when your soulmate is for example deaf mm -hmm. or mute 
and uh, maybe their first words to you will be in sign language, or yeah. maybe their their first words to you will be written out instead of uh, spoken out loud. And so I there have been a few stories that explored the idea of how do you make a visual visual representation of sign language on a person's body instead of you know writing by hand. Uh, and uh, that's been very interesting. And sometimes uh, there have been stories where uh, that means that only one of the soulmates has a soul mark. Uh, mm. And so uh, when it comes to God and uh, confessing things, I have to say that I think God would be up for some variations uh, and not just having to confess with the mouth. But That is, I think, very accurate. And that's, that's I mean... I know I've been in Christian community, Christian congregations where we've shifted from saying, God, in your mercy, hear our prayer to God, in, our, in your mercy, receive our prayer specifically as an acknowledgement sure. that God does not need to hear in order to receive prayer. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, also, like, presumably God could get that kind of thing telepathically if God wanted to. Right. I, you know, you know, it's complicated. Yeah. God being God, some rules don't really exist. <laughs> True. True. And then in verse 12, we read, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same God is God of all and is generous to all who call on them. And my immediate reaction was, ah, but there are distinctions. It is in fact true that hobbits and quote unquote men and dwarves and elves all experience the world differently. There are distinctions, and yet they are all part of the fellowship. So yes, your past and your history and your ancestry and your particular lived experiences in the world are distinct. And what Paul is actually saying, right, is they don't keep you from being part of the community. They are part of you and you are part of the community altogether. So let's go destroy the ring. <laughs> what struck me about that, especially coming from... Paul is, and I, I'm not historic, my, my sense of the history of this isn't super clear, but mm -hmm. at least today, we say in a lot of our prayers, you know, that God separated, that, you know, created the people of Israel as a separate nation. Mm -hmm. You know, sure. the, the word holy in Hebrew has, is about separating and keeping and, you know, having separate people. So it's kind of, it's just, mm -hmm. it's an interesting thing that he would say coming from yeah. when, from whence he came. Right. Because Paul even in writing this, is Jewish. Um, yeah. And it's, yeah. My understanding is that the church at the time was going through the conversation of, in order to be Christian, you have to also be Jewish. Mm -hmm. And so Paul is trying to reinforce the idea that you can become Christian without going through uh, or observing Jewish law, uh, if that's not where you come from. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, that sense. got more complicated later on. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. That is also my understanding of it. But it is a tricky, like, again, it's part of this conversation that, like, there are different ways and framings that we use for the conversation throughout history. And in that time, it was who is allowed to be included. And now it's who can we exclude, which is yeah. the exact opposite. Or who can we say, ah, but you have to be this in order to really count. Yeah. And then our gospel reading for this episode is Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. 
After his baptism, Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness, where he fasts for 40 days and is tempted by the devil with much cherry-picking of Bible verses. So one of the themes in this passage is the idea of testing. Um, the, the devil is like there to test Jesus, to test his loyalties, to test his commitment. Um, and it's a mark of distrust, right? The test is inherently there is something, some trust that has to be proven or that for some reason someone is not trustworthy. Um, and so it reminded me of the Avengers in Winter Soldier, I think is that um, movie, but they're all like testing each other's, there's like testing of each other's loyalty. Like, are you committed to this? Is this what you're doing? And testing the loyalty to S.H.I.E.L.D. in particular. And the irony, of course, is that at that by that point, S.H.I.E.L.D. has been infiltrated by HYDRA, so S.H.I.E.L.D. itself is not trustworthy, but is still like trying to test the loyalty of the Avengers to S.H.I.E.L.D. And then it's figured out that like S.H.I.E.L.D. is not trustworthy. And so the Avengers' loyalty actually needs to be something to something that is not S.H.I.E.L.D., but in fact some greater thing. And that actually feels like it fits really well of like, the devil being like, no, do you trust me? And it's like, no, well, no, you're not trustworthy. Trust has to be to something larger. So your testing is not legit. Yeah. Which felt like a long roundabout way of doing it. Um, I do like all of the cherry picking of Bible verses because we just have so much proof texting that we do today. And so <laughs> then to like have proof texting happen both directions, we're like, Jesus is proof texting the devil and then the devil's like, ah, but I have proof texts too. Here, what about these two verses I'll throw out? Um, well, I, f I feel like when Jesus quotes Bible verses, he he's doing so in a way to make it clear that their meaning is also, the, the way that he means them is the way that they mean in context. When, when Satan is quoting Bible verses in this passage, it is not always with like, the full context contextual meaning being accurate so details details like there are ways to quote individual bible verses without like intentionally destroying their meaning it is true it is true I we do that too in talmud and midrash in terms of how bible verses get used as proof texts it can get a little bit wacky yeah yeah especially well and especially when you're dealing with translations from the original language in the first place but that is true. And the Luke, I think Luke also, but I know Matthew for sure. The like, when Matthew quotes Hebrew scriptures, it's quoting the Greek version of the Hebrew. Yeah. And so then you it. actually get like, not necessarily a super accurate translation. Um, but any sort of translation is going to be interpretation, which we've talked about before. Yeah. But, yeah. And then in the first verse, we read Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan where he was baptized, and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. And I love the idea of going into the wilderness. Um, and so I always have like conflict when it comes to the wilderness because it's so frequently portrayed as like this scary space. But also Jesus is frequently going like off on his own to pray. So I was thinking about like why Jesus was going to the Holy Spirit. And as long as you don't read the rest of the passage um, where it says to be tested by <laughs> the devil for 40 days, then it could be that Jesus is going for respite or penance or preparation. I don't know. Any of the many things that Luke Skywalker, any of the many reasons that Luke Skywalker had for leaving all of everyone else 
at after Return of the Jedi uh, in episode six to go be by himself on this far off island slash planet of the Jedi, which was, I think, mostly he felt guilty about things uh, more so than that he was actually trying to get any sort of like nourishment. And I mean, he did. He got. I think we can also leave open the idea that Jesus can multitask. But like just because he was getting tested by the devil doesn't mean he didn't also take some naps. I would hope he took some naps because fasting for 40 days, like you got to be taking lots of naps. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, if, if you want to cherry pick Bible versus Emily, that is entirely up to you, you know, I guess. It so. was a theme. <laughs> yes. Uh, and then in verse seven, we read, if you then will worship me, uh, it will all be yours. Uh, and he's saying that if Jesus will worship him, uh, then the entire world will be Jesus's. Uh, and so I have to admit that when it comes to the original set of Star Trek movies, my favorite is definitely number six, uh, The Undiscovered Country. But number five uh, is not one of the most popular ones uh, because this was a case of someone making a movie instead of going to therapy about their issues with religion <laughs> and uh, which you know happens i've I seen more than a few my, of those I was movies say, I think not always about mentioned religion mentioned this movie before yes i have uh, but i've also mentioned the concept of sometimes people write a book or make a movie or make a tv show instead of going to therapy and really you could do both at the very least mm -hmm. uh, but like also um and sometimes it turns into an in interesting movie. So Star Trek uh, movie number five is called The Final Frontier. Uh, and that movie is famous because James T. Kirk winds up having an ongoing argument with a very powerful being who claims to be God uh, and then gets in the ultimate one-liner because at one point uh, this character calling himself God makes a very similar offer to Kirk in exchange for the use of the Enterprise, uh, Kirk's spaceship, mm. to which uh, Captain Kirk memorably replies, what does God need with a spaceship? <laughs> and I, I love that bit because like, if you're God, you really shouldn't need a spaceship that that seems like you should be able to do things without having to use physical stuff. That's fine. Um, and uh, also, if you know, if you're God, then you should be better at arguing than to allow James T. Kirk to outwit you. Which, <laughs> like, he's not bad, but it's not what he's best at for the most part. So, yeah, like, uh, yeah, it's not I, like Jacob being good at. It's not like Spock and so God was like so a mysterious person who frequently is ascribed to being God, wrestled with Jacob yeah. all night. Not the same. Yeah. And I have to say that when I thought of that, I also realized that in this passage, Satan seems a little needy. Like, <laughs> in this passage, when he's trying to tempt Jesus. Right. it. Uh, I need you yeah. to... Maybe, maybe the devil is a two on the Enneagram and I... <laughs> slightly disintegrating and so needs to be needed and then also has like a martyrdom complex about if their needs aren't getting met so like if you're asking yourself is this how god would treat me then you know ask yourself god god doesn't need to be needy yeah. and uh ask yourself if that's what's going on so so russell any other thoughts on life the universe and everything i feel like we've covered most of the things i was thinking about okay. uh do you have any particular favorite places that people can go to uh, look up answers to questions they might have about uh, Jewish Holy Days or... So there are some great kind of websites on the different kind of movement pages 
-hmm. So the Union for Reform Judaism or the United Synagogue of Conservative Judaism, along with Chabad, and I think, I imagine the Orthodox Union have some good sort of resources. I can send you guys those websites if you'd like. That would be awesome. Absolutely. Sure. That would be awesome. So we will post those in our episode description. Yeah. Um, wonderful. Thank you for being with us, Russell. It is always good yes. to have you on our podcast. And thank you guys for having me. Yeah. And thank you, dear listeners, for joining us. Catch us next time when we'll discuss nerdery connections to the scripture readings for the second Sunday in Lent. This podcast has been produced by us, Emily Ewing and Kay Roloff. For more fun, check us out on Twitter and Facebook at Nerds at Church. Or contact us at nerdsatchurch at gmail.com. Also, if you like what you've heard, rate us or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever you catch your podcasts. If you want access to our uncut guest episodes and interviews, live Q&As, and more, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nerdsatchurch. As the ancient Christian said, Pax phobiscum.